Our first scripture the reading this morning is Psalms 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The word of God for the people of God. Our uh, second scripture reading today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If I can get there real quick. We're in verses 12 through 20. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain and your faith has been in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead is not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are all people we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. The word of God for the people of God. Our gospel text this morning is going to be from the gospel of Luke, chapter 6. And we are going to read, um, I don't know what it said, but I know what I'm going to read. We're going to read probably 17 through 26 or 27. Um, so it says, Then they came down from the mountain. The disciples stood with Jesus on the large level area, surrounded by many of his followers and by the crowds. And they were people from all over Judea and from Jerusalem and from far north as the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. And so they came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And they were troubled by evil spirits. And they were healed. And everyone tried to touch him because healing power went out of them. And he healed everyone. And then Jesus turned to his disciples and said this, God blesses you who are poor for the kingdom of God is yours. God blesses you who are hungry now for you will be satisfied. God blesses you who weep now because in due time you will laugh. What blessings await you when people hate you and exclude you and mock you and curse you as evil because you follow the son of man. When that happens, be happy. Be happy, yes, leap for joy, for great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember the ancestors that they treated the ancient prophets in the same way. What sorrow awaits you who are rich, for you have only, sorry, for you only have happiness now. What sorrow awaits you those who are fat, I'm reading the NLT by the way. What sorrow awaits you those who are fat and prosperous now, for a time of awful hunger awaits you. What sorrow awaits you from those who laugh now, for your laughs will turn from mourning and sorrow. What sorrow awaits you who are praised by the crowds, for their ancestors also praise false prophets. But to you who will listen, 
I say to you, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who hurt you. The word of God for the people of God. That read a little differently than I intended, but that is okay. So the NLT was weird. Sorry about that. Um, so this past week, um, we all celebrated, maybe you celebrated Valentine's Day. Um, if you have small children, you definitely celebrated Valentine's Day. There's lots of candies and art projects and shirts to wear and things to do. For Corey and I, it was our ninth Valentine's Day that we celebrated together. This summer will be um, nine years, we'll celebrate nine years of marriage and ten years together. Uh, now, we are in our early 30s, so simple math will tell you we were very young when we got married. And Corey hadn't yet finished his bachelor's yet, and we were both working retail jobs, and he was taking night classes. And I set that scene just to state this. We were very poor. Like, very poor. Anybody else very poor when you are first married? Just us? Uh, a lot of us. We were very, very poor. We were like the kind of poor where we had to eat at his mom's house on Tuesdays and eat at my mom's house on Thursdays and hope that on Wednesdays the church had free food. Um, we were that kind of poor, right? And so I remember um, one memory that sticks out vividly from that time. We only lived in this little rental house we were in that first year we were married. And in my memory, it was like right in that horrible rental house that we were in. And um, we had one frozen pizza to last us until payday. Um, and that sounds like really destitute, but it probably wasn't. I'm probably magnifying that slightly. But this is, in my memory, that's what it was. We had this one frozen pizza to last until payday. And whoever it was that was taking it out of the oven, currently I can't even remember if it was me or Corey, we were pulling it out. It flipped upside down and went underneath the element. <laughs> like... Like it, like as you're taking it, it just went and went underneath the heating element, like the electric heating element, the bottom of the stove. So the food is gone. And I remember being devastated. Like not just like food's gone, we can go to our mom's, but it was like we were so poor and the food is gone. And like it was just upsetting to me, right? Now, I can laugh about it now. It's one of my favorite, like, remember that one time um, kind of stories. But I know that I would have been upset at the time if some prophet would have come up to me and said, you know what? Blessed are the hungry. Um, <laughs> blessed are the poor. I would not have found humor in it at that point, right? But this is kind of what Jesus is doing on the what we call the Sermon on the Plain in Luke. This is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. It's abbreviated um, compared to the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount and Mark are about three chapters. You get about, you know, five verses. I said Mark. I meant Matthew. And, um, but it's longer in Matthew. But then Luke does this weird thing where you get Beatitudes and then you get woe unto you at the same time. So he's kind of clumping all that, all that in together. So blessed are you, and then woe unto you in the same passage. And this story that starts, if we back up a little bit in Luke 6, with Jesus eating some grain that he wasn't supposed to on the Sabbath. And the disciples kind of stop him at this point and say, Hey, teacher, teacher, you know you can't do that on the Sabbath. And then he says this very profound statement at the beginning of Luke 6. that says, The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And so then to make matters worse... He finds this man with a shriveled up hand as he's entering the synagogue. And he decides, well, I might as well heal this fella if I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I can do what I want. It might be the Sabbath, but I will do what I want. So he heals the man. And then this is where the crowd 
comes from at our sermon on the plain. This is where the crowd comes from at the beginning of our gospel text this morning. As is often the case with the gospels, these people aren't following Jesus out of sheer dedication like the disciples. They're following Jesus because he just did something. So we find Jesus surrounded by people who want to be healed by him. They want to be free from their unclean spirits and to be free from physical infirmity. We find him surrounded by people that just want Jesus to act. They want him to do something. So does Jesus act? Well, no, because that's not how Jesus works. (laughs) That's not what he does. It's not how we predict Jesus. Jesus does not like being that predictable. So what Jesus does, since he has the crowd that's gathered anyway, is he makes this proclamation to the poor. But to understand this, we kind of have to dig in a little bit to what being poor meant to the people of that day. It's a far bigger deal than my newly married waiting on payday event. It's huge. New Testament scholar John Dominic Crossing distinguishes in a book that he writes the difference between being a pauper and being a peasant. And then again, he said, there's a difference between being destitute and being a beggar. There's a difference. And so then he goes on to say, Jesus declared blessed, then not just the poor, but the destitute. Not just poverty, but beggary. God's blessing do not fall on the poor just because they're poor. What Jesus was doing was taking the utterly reviled, the expendable of the human family, the wretched of the earth in their eyes, and declaring them favored. And then saying they are deserving of God's blessing. They deserve it too. He was taking one of the most shame-filled things of that time. Being so poor that you had to beg on the street. Being without and having to subsist on handouts. He was taking all of that shame that is wrapped up in that and he redeemed it in those few words. He was redeeming it for them. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Notice he wasn't saying, blessed are you who are poor, for I am about to make you unpoor. That's not what Jesus said. He was saying to those people, blessed are the shame-filled. Blessed are those without family. Blessed are those who are alone, for you have family now, you have value now, and there's no stigma here anymore. The reason for our shame today may be or maybe not poverty. Maybe your shame comes from childhood trauma. Maybe your shame comes from things you've left undone. Maybe it's your shame comes from things you have done. In our current culture, there are numerous reasons and layers that we may hold on to and live in shame in our lives. But just like Jesus redeemed the shame of the impoverished, he redeems our shame as well. He looks into our lives and desires for us to realize that we are a part of the very kingdom of God. That where we have lack, that he will fill us. That where we have held on to tears, he will impart laughter. But when Jesus was speaking to the multitude, it wasn't just composed of the hungry, of the poor, the weeping, and persecuted peoples. The text was said that there were all kinds of people from all over Jerusalem, Judea, Tyra, a bunch of other places. And presumably, there were also the people there that were still upset that he healed that man with the shriveled hand on the Sabbath. 
Presumably, we can assume that it wasn't just people excited to see Jesus that followed him out onto the plain that day. So he wasn't just declaring to the humiliated poor that they were valued in the kingdom of God. He was speaking to the people and the systems that were perpetuating that shame, the ones that they looked down on, and he was saying to those people, they have worth, they matter, they exist, and they have value. It was an affirmation for many in the crowd, but it was condemnation for some. It was calling some of them out. And all of that is just packed into those five little Beatitudes. We haven't even gotten to woe unto you yet, right? So the Beatitudes in Matthew were pretty straightforward. They're, they're the ones we like better for the most part. They're the ones you hear for the most part. But the Beatitudes of Luke have a mirror image. We have a mirror image of blessed are you and woe unto you. We have blessed are the poor, and then a few verses down, we have woe to the rich. And blessed are the hungry, and then woe to the well-fed. Blessed are those that mourn, and then woe to those who laugh. Blessed are the persecuted, well, woe to those who speak well of you. Now, at first glance, these woes are hard to parse, at least for me. Like, why is Jesus mad that we ate food today, and why can't we laugh? What is he talking about? Why woe unto me? What is he trying to tell us? But if the woes of Luke 6 mirror if the Beatitudes mirror that, then we should use that mirror on ourselves. When it says, woe to the rich, we must look at our lives and ask the question, when have I inflicted shame and guilt and grief onto another human being? When have I taken the cultural norms of my world and imposed them onto other people in a way that Jesus doesn't? When have I failed to see other people as full members of the kingdom of God when we know that Jesus does? When it says, woe to those who are well fed, we must use that mirror of Luke to look inward and say, am I so content with my life that I do not care about the contentment of others? Am I more focused on where I'm going to eat today than the hungry people that I'm going to pass on the way? Am I so full of the goodness of this life that I'm not spreading life to those around me? When we read, woe to those who laugh, we must ask ourselves, am I so wrapped up in my own joy that I lack empathy? Am I so removed from the suffering that I am unable to suffer with my fellow man? Has my own happiness become my reason for waking up in the morning, my reason for continuing to go, so much so that I've forsaken the kingdom of God? And this is a tricky one. The one at the end, the woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. Well, Jesus, don't I want people to think that I'm of good character? Don't I want people to think I'm a good person? Don't I want people to think I'm an upstanding citizen, et cetera, et cetera? Well, Jesus right here emphatically says no. No, that's not what we want. That's not the main goal of the gospel. When studying this one particular verse this week, because this one was difficult for me as I read through it, I kept coming back to something that Andy said in Sunday school this past Sunday when he asked if we were rule breakers or rule followers. And we all gave our short versions of our answers. And at the end, Andy said, well, I'm a rule follower unless the rules are stupid. <laughs> and I thought about that. I think it's a lot of us. 
And I thought about that when I, I watched this TED Talk this week. And in this, are you all familiar with TED Talks? They're like brief little 15-minute um, interviews with somebody that's doing something significant in the world. So I watched this TED Talk of this guy that called himself a gorilla gardener. And when I say gorilla, think gorilla warfare, not animal gorilla. Um, so he calls himself a gorilla gardener. And his name is Ron Finley, and he lives in South Central L.A. In South Central LA, there are over 26 square miles of vacant lots that are just owned by the city of Los Angeles. They're just empty. And the way he describes South Central LA is it is liquor stores, fast food restaurants, and vacant lots. And that's what's in his neighborhood. And what his nonprofit does is brings in teams of people that take the strip of land between the sidewalk and the street. And we have those here. You know, you have your grass the sidewalk, and then that strip of land that is owned by the city, but you have to maintain it. You know, like, you got to cut that grass, but the city owns that 150 square foot of whatever right in front of your house if you have a sidewalk. Well, what his group does is they go in and take that piece that's technically owned by the city of Los Angeles, and they plant food gardens. Things that grow in the area like bananas and strawberries and lemon trees and kale and carrots things that people can eat in the neighborhood. He's making food in a food desert. Now, eventually, his crew begins to get citations from the city, as you would imagine. Um, and after persistent guerrilla gardening, there was a warrant out for his arrest, um, which is great. Like, what is your charge? Gardening. Um, but it... That was what I, this is what I would call following the rules unless they're stupid. Um, he was, you're allowed to maintain it. He maintained it with bananas. I mean, so the rules are weird. But not everyone was speaking well of this guy. People had a problem with him. But at some point, we have to accept some things as holy mischief. At some point in our lives, standing up for the poor and the hurting and the marginalized and the forgotten might make us look foolish. Without the help of his city councilman, the gorilla gardener would probably have landed in jail because he chose to see the hungry as human. He chose to see the hungry as people that had value. Doing what is right and good and holy doesn't always make friends, but it does give us an opportunity to see the hurting around us as blessed by God. It gives God an opportunity to use us to bless others. And then ultimately, the world that is so focused on the betterment of ourselves. It is a movement of a stream that we are in, and we have to look at it through Jesus' eyes and start to swim against the stream. And this will look foreign. This will look foolish. This will look like we're, to the people that are following the stream, we will look like outsiders. And this is why we can't focus on what people think. And that can't be our barometer of what is blessing and what is successful. Because to so many of them, they will be looking at the world, and they're looking at the world the wrong way. When we look at the world the wrong way, of, of course, holiness will look odd. So my encouragement to all of you this week is do something that makes people talk about you. Act and live in such a way that the forgotten feel seen and that the empire is frustrated. May we be a sanctuary for people that are filled with shame, 
and that leave our presence knowing that they have value in the kingdom of God. Let us pray.